This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and joining me in the studio today is Dr Deanna Minnick who needs no introduction so I'd like to warmly welcome her to FX Medicine today. Thank you, thank <laughs> you for having me. So let's go back. Tell me about your first forays into diet and nutrition. Why formalise it and why embrace integrative medicine? It actually started when I was quite young. You know, I had this vision, I was uh, nine years old I had this health nut mom, and uh, we had all these strange meals at home, and uh, I actually didn't like it. I had an eating disorder as a teenager, so lots of emotional eating and overeating and binging and this kind of stuff, and never thought I would be here talking with you about nutrition right now, quite honestly. So I was all set to become a, a medical doctor. So I was studying pre-med, right. and uh, I was ready to go, just very logical science mind. Yeah. I was looking for answers. And then all of a sudden, it was my third year of undergrad, I had this, this shift in my thinking and I thought, it's, I, I can't become a doctor. That's not my path. What was the trigger for that? Well, I started working for doctors. Every summer I would come home from school. <laughs> yep. I worked at the hospital. I worked for these doctors during the summers that I had off. And I realized that what they were doing was not really what I wanted to do. Mm. They were writing scripts. They were not really listening to the patient. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, I, I thought that they were giving patients solutions, not just these quick fixes that weren't really fixes at all. So I changed course and I decided to go on to graduate school to study nutrition. I never thought I would have studied nutrition, but I wanted something preventative. So it kind of went back to reason. my mom. Right, okay. Gotcha. You know, I, I saw, and, and <clears throat> quite honestly, I also started to develop my own health issues. So as a teen, uh, I had a lot of gut issues. I think everybody at some point in their lives has these, but they didn't go away. You know, I had a very nervous stomach. I had IBS. I had endometriosis, which is an inflammatory condition of the uterus. Uh, so I had my own issues I wanted to work out. And I noticed that medicine in its traditional form was not really giving me those answers either. So it was kind of a personal and professional path that kind of got intertwined. I was very interested when you let the audience know about your research interests. One of them was carotenoids. Mm. Take us through that research because it's really interesting what happened in the carrot and other trials. Yeah. So um, one of the first things that I did after I finished graduate school was I went to get my master's in nutrition. And uh, as part of your master's in the States, you have a, some kind of research project. So mine was working on carotenoids. And carotenoids are these colorful plant-based nutrients. And there is a family of like 650 of these things. So my research was really focused on certain ones. Um, we did a study with lycopene. So lycopene mm -hmm. is a yep. carotenoid that's red. That's what makes tomatoes red and watermelon kind of that pink red. And so we were looking at bioavailability of, of the lycopene from taking it in from food. And this is back in the early 90s when 
most people didn't know about mm. how you had to cook lycopene or mm. cook tomatoes to actually absorb the lycopene. Yeah. So we were doing some of that research. And um, so that was one. And then I had a, a, a project where we were trying to see if we could evoke oxidative stress in athletes or basically healthy college age men mm. who were a little bit sports inclined and uh, to see whether or not uh, carotenoids would have an impact on their um, them taking in certain foods. So it was interesting. I, I worked with some um, pretty amazing professors like uh, Dr. Phyllis Bowen. Um, at that time, that's when functional foods started to emerge. Oh, this okay. is kind of a foreign concept before, but people yeah. started putting carotenoids into foods yeah. that didn't normally attain carotenoid, yeah. carotenoids. Yeah. So then you get the additional healing and the, the benefits of the carotenoids without having to consume all these different foods. When you have these carotenoids, though, particularly, let's say, let's talk about lycopene. If you put lycopene into a supplement and it's not being cooked like you cook the tomatoes, how absorbable, how useful is it? What are the benefits that have been shown? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, and that's part of the danger of supplements where we take things out of the food matrix mm. and it becomes something different. It doesn't work the same way in the body. But there are some tricks. And so for very seasoned, savvy supplement manufacturers, they would know that lycopene requires oil for absorption, similar to turmeric. Mm. So if you have in this soft gel or capsule, whatever it is, or powder, some type of oil or emulsion to go along with the lycopene, you can actually facilitate the absorption. Right. And then onto your PhD, what was that on? It was on essential fatty acids. Yeah. So um, all about absorption and metabolism of these essential fatty acids. Any, all? We look specifically um, at patients with cholestasis, which is a condition yep. of not having the bile come out into the bile duct and into the intestine. It backs up into the liver, so usually the, the person becomes jaundiced. So we were looking at the role of bile in the absorption of essential fatty acids. So when you ask any all, uh, it was mainly we looked at linoleic acid, which is the precursor omega-6 fat. Mm -hmm. and. Um, we did do a little bit of work on the omega-3s as well. Yeah. But in these situations, we also worked with uh, children with cystic fibrosis. So oh, children okay. with cystic fibrosis don't produce enough in the way of pancreatic enzymes. Mm. So when we take in dietary fats, they kind of look like this, a triglyceride, right? And we need to cleave these triglycerides to absorb them. So we were trying to see how we could facilitate the absorption of these essential fats in people with these clinical conditions. And indeed, cystic fibrosis, the uh, maintenance, if you like, is these high-dose pancreatic enzymes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so when you're talking about things like the fatty acids, did you ever investigate, probably unheard of back then, um, C. buckthorn and the omega-7s? Mm. Did you? We didn't. Right. Well, that's a whole other family of fatty acids, yeah. right? You've got the omega-3s, omega-6, omega-7, omega-9, and they do not connect to each other. They're separate. The omega-7s have really, I would say, started to surface just, I would say, probably recently, like within yeah. the last five to 10 well, years. Well, the funny thing is, is that they've been used by, they were used by Roman soldiers. They, mm -hmm. they you mm -hmm. know, hippocampus means shiny horse. They used to feed it to their horses mm. to keep them moving. But commercially, um, unavailable for our use until recently. What about yeah. things like NAC though, with um, cholestasis? Ever used that? Yeah, yeah, you know, um, we didn't specifically in our, in our studies, yeah, but anything studies. to help the liver with processing certain metabolites would be good, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and there are certain herbs, herbs, I should say, <laughs> in Australia. I have a joke about that, but it's too rude to um, say on camera. 
uh, like dandelion or artichoke that help to, they're cologogs, right? So they're going to stimulate the, yeah. um, the bile duct. Yeah. yeah, that was Eddie Izzard, not me. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you about it later. So when you're looking at fatty acids, what about the omega-6s and the omega-9s? Yeah. Um, the delta-6, delta-5, delta-4 desaturates, the yeah. common nutrients involved in that, zinc, yeah. B6, magnesium. Yeah. Did you find when you were looking at these patients, investigating how well absorbed these fats were and all that sort of thing, did, did, you, did nutrient deficiencies ever come up? You know, being that we were just looking simply at the fat yeah. themselves right. without looking at all the peripheral issues, yeah. you raise a really good point. Because I think many times uh, we overlook the fact that this is a very nutrient requiring process to convert fats, mm. which is why many of us don't do it very well. Yeah. So women do it more efficiently than men, probably because they have a greater need, yeah. especially during pregnancy, yeah, yeah. you know, there's a greater conversion. Mm. So you're right, you just listed a number of different things. And there are also anti-nutrients or things that we do that inhibit that conversion. So things like insulin resistance, things like uh, alcohol consumption can inhibit that. Yep. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's that tender balance of keeping it all in check. And I, I feel really passionate about looking at things like nutrient sufficiency and making sure that we have enough because it, these little nutrients drive so many processes in the body. Right? So if we're, we're short just one of them, and the pathway requires six of them, and we're missing one, that pathway is not going to, to go through. So we have to be sure that we have this complex array of many different cofactors. I think what you're speaking about here and, and the overarching message that you've brought me, at least from the symposium, is personalized medicine with yeah. diets. And you do that by certain measurements. Can we delve into that first? Sure, absolutely. So tell me about what sort of things do you think are crucial to look at different patient groups or when a patient presents with certain symptoms? I know that's a, how long is a piece of string I'm question. I'm going to chunk it down into four things, yeah. okay? Um, so first of all, it would be subjective questionnaires where you know you can assess toxic burden, um, just organ system functions, symptomatology, just look at um, just overall body systems. Number two, I would say functional biomarkers. So things like homocysteine or uh, methylmalonic acid, which is a measure of yeah. B12. You know, there are all these functional biomarkers you can look at, right? Um, genetic tests uh, as well can be very useful. Um, and I know that you have some interest in that. So looking at all the different SNPs mm. and how they contribute. And then, um, you know, I think a lot of the diet and, and lifestyle inputs are important too, especially with me being a functional nutritionist, where I need to get a pulse on what you're doing. It's good to have all these labs, but if I don't know how to affect those labs because I don't have that baseline, I need your timeline. Yeah. You know, and I, in the workshop, one of the workshops, I talked about an eating timeline. So if you've got eating issues or you're having a hard time making changes in your eating, I want to know why. I want to get underneath that. Yeah. It's not just about trying to force down your throat. You know, just, you need to do this. You know, that, that's only going to work so far. Yeah, that's right. So it's really more about um, trying to understand the emotional landscape that I'm working within, the epigenetics that have been in motion since you were in utero. So I'd have to understand you from that perspective. So I, I guess I think about those four things and how they all kind of work together. One of the great messages that I got from your talks was to look at that person, that, um, that person's emotion and spirit. Yeah. And, and we're all caught up in telling somebody 
what to do, what's healthy because we know and they don't. But yeah. they've got to embrace that. They've mm -hmm. got to accept, indeed, want change. And this is where your the beauty of what you do comes in. Can you take our viewers and our listeners through a little bit about your magic, I've got to say? Well, goodness. Um, <laughs> I wish we had somebody here for me to kind of take you through kind of an interview process of actually how I would maybe get into that space. So, yeah. you know, I might work out, let's take one thing that's really prevalent mm -hmm. and, and maybe take it from that yeah, direction. Yeah. So one thing that's really common that I find is a lot of emotional eating. I get that because I've experienced that. Yeah. I'm sure you have too. Maybe it's just like, you know, you the, the research shows that food and mood are very interrelated. And if you ask the question, which one comes first? Is it the food that affects the mood? Or is it the mood that affects the food? I would say that the preponderance of research is more about the food really impacting the mood than the mood making that food choice. But really, it's, it's bi-directional. So um, to understand the influence of emotions and mood on cravings, food cravings. I'm sure Australians uh, have their favorite food cravings, whether it's salty Vegemite. food. What is it? Vegemite. Vegemite. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I knew I had to How bring that one up. How can anybody crave that? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, getting to the bottom of cravings. So one simple activity I might do with somebody, and this is shown to be very effective with many people, is I would do a technique called laddering. So mm. what, what is your favorite craving? What, what is a food that you're so tapped into and you can't seem to make sense of it? Chicken. 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 Okay. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> what I would do in this case is get you a little bit relaxed. You know, you'd close your eyes and uh, take a couple of deep breaths. And then what I would do is say this word chicken to you over and over and over again, yep. 20 times. Yep. And what tends to happen is people will give me some hedonic characteristics of the food. So let's just try it. Let's try it. <laughs> so, so if you just close your eyes and yeah. I just say to you, chicken, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? Just go fast. Go very quickly as I go through these words. Yep. Chicken. Scallop. Chicken. Bum. Chicken. Roast. Chicken. Oil. Chicken. Leg. Chicken. Satiety. Chicken. Fullness. Let's stop there. You, you just gave me a lot of information, actually. Everybody would be different in their responses. Sure. So there's something about your need to feel satiated. Yeah. Something about how chicken, this connection to that fat that just kind of fills you. And so I might take a patient into the terrain of saying, well, what makes you fulfilled in life? You know, and sometimes we reach to the food in order to get the thing that we're looking for at that yep. deeper level. Yep. So instead of looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and satiety in your everyday life, we might reach for the chicken as an example. Now that's not for everybody. Sometimes food cravings are more physiological based. Yep. Like we might lack certain nutrients, but it's so interesting. I've had so many instances where I would have never thought that this certain food has this emotional memory type connection with the patient. So looking at that link there with um, chicken and, and being satiated, yeah. um, would you say then that we tag on an emotional need in our life about food. being unfulfilled. You got it. I mm -hmm. need to be a chicken, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but basically that you're, you're tagging in the reason for the emotional eating. Correct. Is that right? Yeah, and it's, um, if we kept doing it, and I did that about 20 times, 
We'd go deeper into your subconscious. This would be an embarrassing podcast. <laughs> I, I thought I'd stop for that reason. <laughs> yeah. I, we kept it at six or yeah, seven, yeah, you yeah. know? Don't get too weird. But uh, <laughs> as, as, as I would take you deeper, you'd start saying things that maybe have nothing to do with the chicken itself. Yeah. It might have to do with a memory of eating chicken at a holiday gathering where you felt really joyful or you felt really satiated yeah. and fulfilled. You had community and yeah. company around you. So what I encourage patients to do is look at the story. The story, everybody here is talking about the story. Andy Heyman was talking about it as well. And it does come down to the story. It comes down to listening to the story. What are they saying? What are the words that they're using? And how do you extrapolate that out, right? So food tells us some kind of story about us. So when you're asking those 20 times, you find that the initial ones are what they found joyful about it, the things, the reason that they're craving it. And then you get down deeper into the reasons that they're not fulfilling in their lives or, or there's some other reason. Yeah, so yeah. at the end, well, typically, um, you know, to, you're unique in your chicken craving, <laughs> I'll just say that. But um, we've had people with chocolate or yeah. potato chips yeah. or cheese yeah. and coffee, these kinds of things. So typically they'll give me words about that. So when they're doing it fast, it's stream of consciousness. So mm -hmm. we're really getting into the psyche. So that when they do it initially, it's all the adjectives about the food. Mm -hmm. You did it as well, mm -hmm. roasted Roast. and yeah. you know. And yeah. But if I kept going with you, you're gonna move away from that to this next layer. And that's where these things come bubbling out. And so that by the very end, we have a story with all these words. Then we go into, I show them the picture of the words and I ask them to make the story. Right, yeah. So I don't always interpret it for so them. So it's really I want them just leading the, the I'm patient just leading, through yeah, thing, just yeah. through this very, very simple, you know, two minute exercise to give you a lot of information. And then at the end, what I might say is, is it good that you have this craving for chicken? Yeah. Are you eating too much chicken? Yeah. Maybe it's not a problem, but for the ice cream and potato chip and coffee people, it's usually an issue. Yeah. So then what I'll ask them is, what are three things that could give you, and then fill in the blank. For you, it would be fulfillment, yeah. satiety. But you know, I think of satiety as something more. It is fulfillment. Yeah. You know, There's a different hunger there. So we might think of three other things that you can do. And then they're on your mental radar so that when you go to reach for the chicken, your mind is going to pull back and say, hmm, do I really what do I really want food? here? So, so mm -hmm. practically speaking, it's a way which you can train patients to become a, to be aware, to be yeah. present of the reasons for their cravings. Yeah. yeah. Most people don't even know. Yeah. Actually, they start crying typically midway through the exercise. Don't make thinking, me cry I, I won't. We didn't go that far for that very reason. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's what we see. It's like it, it, it unfolds. Yeah. A lot of the researchers and, and presenters are talking here about molecular mimicry when or cellular memory. Mm. We have a lot of that stuff locked within us. Um, Dr. Heyman talking about PTSD and, you know, stress. Mm. So it's almost like the brain remembers. And so, but we try to forget certain things, but if we're tapping in in certain ways, it can come to the surface and give us a lot of uh, data about what's going on. A lot of the reasons that we have these cravings, if you like, if you want to go into that, is a, a protection, a protective mechanism. Yeah. Uh, all, all be that failing us in the in the long term. And one of the things I liked from one of your talks was talking about food chats. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, we as the experts of health give this information to our patients, and they take it away. But that that recedes. You know, life comes into play, and those old bad habits creep in again. Tell me about food chats, because I think that's a really important practical thing that practitioners can do. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's important to check in frequently. Well, first of all, before we even get to 
figuring out a diet, yeah. I really like to give the patient the locus of control. Right. Okay? Yeah. So I might say, here's X, Y, and Z. These are the three things that you can do. We can focus on sugar, we can focus on gluten, we can focus on dairy. Which one do you want to work on, right? Because I need your buy-in. If I don't have your engagement and it's just top-down, yep. it's not going to last. And I've seen that. In my very early days, I was kind of like the nutrition police. Mm -hmm. I was like, you're going to do this. You're going to do that. <laughs> and I, I could see that it worked for some people because some people like that chop-chop chop kind of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, yeah. they like that structure. Yeah. But longer term, it didn't work. And then they would just fail and not feel successful and have to do it all over again. And then the guilt sets in. The guilt and sets in. The, yeah. They start gaining weight and it becomes problematic. So what I would do is first get your buy-in. You know, what do you think would serve you best? And everybody deep down has that sense of the innate healer. Yeah. They have that within. So you might say, well, hey, Deanna, I want to work on sugar. And then I would say, okay, well, let's, uh, you know, where do you have sugar in your diet? And then we would check in routinely, right? Uh, maybe I would text you, maybe I would call you, maybe you would come in more frequently. I think many people know what they have to do. It's mm. about accountability. Yeah. They just have to like, tell me what they're doing. But it's the check-in about, uh, you know, we, we will always deny accountability. Accountability. Mm -hmm. We will find ways of denying accountability. Um, and that's where I think these food chats come in about how are you going? Come on, mm -hmm. share. Yeah, just, just let me know. And that's about developing trust too. Yeah. You know, with a therapeutic encounter, there's a triangle. There's the patient, practitioner, and the modality. And the modality is only as good as the patient trusts the practitioner and as much as the practitioner trusts the modality. So if I'm talking with you about the elimination diet, and I've never experienced the elimination diet, mm. and I have no trust or I just kind of know it cerebrally yep. and I don't know it in my heart yep. and I don't know the experience, it's not going to come off as like solid trust. But if I've been through it and I know exactly what you're going to go through, I'm your friend in that process, yeah. right? Yeah. So the trust needs to be there in order to have those food chats. So I think really, this is the call because uh, to read your books because you've got a new book out. I do. And this sort of thing, take in, in fact, I'm gonna leave it to you. Tell our practitioner listeners and, and viewers what you're gonna be sharing in that book. What's new? Yeah. Okay, so the book is called Whole Detox and it's a 21 day program to look at all features in one's life. So what's toxic for you? Um, so it's not We're going to do this with detox. me again. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I needed somebody to kind of show you. Um, so it's not a detox in the traditional sense of looking at chelation and, you know, focusing so much on liver and gut. It's looking at those things through the lens of color. So 21 days and I have the seven systems of health, seven things that you do every day within the 21 days and all very manageable. Things that take just seconds or minutes of one's time. And so what I have found, I've actually collected a lot of data and of people doing the program and people experience things that I think that they are not thinking that they're going to uh, experience and, and feel about. They think that it's just gonna be about their bodies mm -hmm. and it ends up being about their emotions. It ends up being about limiting thoughts that they might have. It ends up being about self-care practices. It ends up being about, wow, I've been really silent and I need to start speaking my truth. Mm -hmm. So I really take it very broad and look at toxicity as anything that stands in the way of your growth, of your potential. Yep. That might be a thought that you have and keep thinking. It might be a relationship that you continue to stay in, mm -hmm. even though it's not serving you. It might be a job that you're working that gives you a lot of stress. 
So I put a big lens on all the forms of toxins within one's life. I have to ask you this because it was a, a highlight of the 2016 symposium, and that is the responsible directed measurement of certain genomic measures, SNPs, mm -hmm. and how we can access that, how we can address that with diet. Can you take our listeners, viewers, through, probably we'll have to do, say, the top five or something, mm. but the most important ones that you find is really practical and relevant to get biggest bang for buck. Yeah. I think we mentioned methylation before. Yeah, we did. Let me just make a comment about genes before we go deep into that. Um, I think we're all excited about nutrigenomics or the influence of nutrients on genes. There is the genetic part of it, and then keep in mind that there is the epigenetic part of it. The epigenetic part of it is squishy. So what we do with our genes is largely under question, and there's not a really good way to see how those epigenetic changes are being made, yeah. right? So we know what our genetic template is, but what we don't know is how all those genes are interacting within your body as we sit here. I can just say on a piece of paper, you've got X, Y, and Z SNPs. So that's a good place to start, but I just want the listeners to know that we're still birthing this science. Mm. Keep in mind that the Human Genome Project finalized in 2003. Mm. So we're still relatively in our infancy here yeah. on yeah. that. So I would say if you're asking me the five SNPs, um, yes, methylation is a hot one right now. And I think that uh, we just have to be careful because whenever, if, if you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. So if I, the only thing I'm measuring is methylation, everything's gonna look like methylation mm. defects, mm. right? But uh, it is important because it controls so many processes within the body. Cardiovascular disease risk can go up, homocysteine can go up, um, neurotransmitter dysfunction, mood disorders, so many different things are connected to this. So looking at uh, MTHFR is one of those SNPs, and MTHFR has two variants. So um, two copies of the gene that can be variable. Mm -hmm. So looking at both of those would be good. The more common copy is called 677. So I have, uh, what I presented in the conference is the methylation protocol for, how, you know, how do you work with somebody that has this kind of defect, mm -hmm. if they're heterozygous or homozygous for yep. that gene. Yep. The second one I would say is called um, catechol-O-methyltransferase. It's also a methylation uh, enzyme and it is responsible for methylating hormones and toxins. So hormones are actually seen as toxins in the body. The body doesn't want to hang on to them, it wants to process them. And one of the ways that it does that is through the action of this enzyme. So when people do not have good functioning of this enzyme, they tend to have distorted estrogen metabolism, neurotransmitters are off, they get wiry, they Energetic, get anxious, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're very anxious. Um, so that's a good one to have because it says, it gives a lot of information about kind of the brain and estrogen. I think the two combined They're work powerful, perfectly. Yeah, 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 they yeah. do. And typically practitioners do do those. Um, I would say number three, looking at uh, inflammation. Inflammation's a big one. And um, being that it's the bedrock of so many chronic diseases, we need to understand what's happening there with that. And so there are a couple of different SNPs there. So TNF-alpha, the receptor, you can look at that. So when people have a variant in that receptor gene, that promoter is just turned on. You know, it's it's receiving the signal all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, I need to figure out how to cool that down. Yeah. IL-6 is another one, interleukin-6. So when you've got um, a lot of these things revved up, your chances of being more inflamed and having chronic diseases will be greater. Uh, the, the last one I would say is APOE. 
I know uh, Dr. Houston talked about it, Dr. Perlmutter talked about it too, because it's a brain and a heart thing, right? So apolipoprotein E comes in a variety of different isoforms, E2, E3, and E4. And so since you have two copies, it could be any combination of those three. Yep. It could be E2, E2, or E2, E3, E2, E4. You know, it gets really yeah. um, six yeah. different, you know, many different varieties here. So the one that most people are concerned about is the E4, E4, because that's the one that predisposes folks to a greater risk potentially doesn't mean that you're doomed but greater risk for things like dementia and alzheimer's disease and i think just you know many people are afraid to know their genes i come from the place of gosh isn't that empowering mm -hmm. to know what you're working with and if i know like for example i've done my genes and i know that i have certain genes for breast cancer yeah. and there i have a family history of breast cancer so i didn't even need to do my genes i was already knowing that this is an issue it's going to keep me more compliant with things like refraining from alcohol, making sure I'm exercising or eating lots of plant-based foods. Whereas if I didn't know those things and didn't think that I actually was primed to go in that direction, mm -hmm. I may not be as compliant. So I think that from a practitioner standpoint, what we can say to our patients is it's really good information. We can be selective about what we know, but at the end of the day, it's going to help keep us on track. I've seen patients respond differently when, when they know their genes. Yeah. I, I think what you've given us here is not just the basis of what all, all therapy should be, and that's our diet, but you're, you're taking us along a, a, a journey of being able to tweak that for the person, their emotional eating, help them with their emotions, which helps so many other factors, but also tweak them personally with regards to the genomic sort of profile mm -hmm. of something. I mean, it's really powerful stuff where you can personalize things. The thing that I will also applaud you for though is that you don't just give the science you um, allow people or bring people to, to celebrate their spirit and mm. I really applaud you for that oh, so well thank done. You. Yeah. Well I just wanted to say now that you're bringing in the emotional part yeah. it's where the, you look at the science of mind-body medicine mm. right mm. there are even SNPs that will say how you process emotions there are SNPs about and interactions uh, to show that you might respond to grief in a certain way um, some scientists would even go as far, and I remember in Time Magazine some years ago, there was even what they call the God gene. So whether or not you believe in something greater than yourself mm -hmm. might be even genetically wired. So maybe there are more things than we realize that are going on, but I think it's way beyond our scope right now. It's hard to make those extrapolations based on what we know. But the fact is that we do have this template that we're working with. All beautiful thoughts and certainly exciting for the future. Yeah. Dr. Deanna Minnick, thank you so much for oh, joining us today Thanks on FX Medicine. Me. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. Hi, this is Stacey the Baby Maker Roberts. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever growing area of natural fertility. My Baby Maker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Baby Maker Mentoring Program. Please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab for more information and to register.